Hey, Dan. What up, guy? You're into this fintech. What's all this I'm hearing about Current? You're going to like this guy. Current is a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. Wait a second. Does that mean I don't have to drive to the bank anymore? <laughs> yeah, exactly. I manage an important part of my family's finances from one easy-to-use app. Well, I got to get this app, but where can I learn more? It's super easy. Just go to Current.com slash OK, O-K-A-Y, and download the app. That's Current.com slash OK. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. Welcome to OK Computer. I am Dan Nathan. I am joined with one of my favorite return guests. That would be Dan Niles. He's the founder and portfolio manager at Sotori Fund. Dan, welcome back to the pod. Thank you for having me back on, Dan. You are a listener favorite, just so you know. We spend a lot of time on private markets. We talk a lot of thematic sort of things in and around tech. And for me, I think my kind of fast money hat, you and I met, I think, a couple decades ago. I was a fast money trader on the street at the time. I love talking markets. I love talking about what might happen next. But I also like talking big picture with folks like you. You've been covering tech since the 90s, and you have a tremendous perspective. But you also have a very interesting macro perspective. And now you don't just trade tech or just just invest in tech. And we're going to talk a little bit about these GLP-1s. This is um, an area that is near and dear to my heart. I found it interesting that we found those in your notes. So we're going to get to some single stocks. We're going to get to some tech stuff. But I really want to start with the macro because I saw a tweet and I didn't see it on Twitter because I'm no longer on Twitter, but one of our team members forwarded it to me. You have this amazing transparency. You put it out that you had been bearish and you had many single stock shorts on, but you had been covering them. I think this was on October 4th or so. And despite having a sort of bearish intermediate to long-term view, you just thought things got a bit oversold, I'm assuming, and as we're getting into Q2 earnings season. So give me a sense of where you are. What were some of the shorts that you had taken off? And how are you thinking about the environment right now? Because we have a yield, and we got to talk about yields too, because if you just look at where we are right now with the two-year, the 10-year, with where Fed funds are likely to go between now and the year end, maybe it's another 25 basis point higher, which would be at a 20 some year high, the fact that stocks are trading the way they are this last few days is really confounding to me. You're right. If you go back and you look on the morning of October 4th, we put out a tweet and it basically said, on average, we have about 50% of our portfolio short. Because remember, I'm a hedge fund. Over a long period of time, we have roughly 75% plus longs, close to 50% shorts. And then so you get to that 25% net exposure because it's an all weather fund that we so it's low gross low net return over time for us when we put out that tweet on october 4th instead of having 50 percent shorts we got it to less than five that's obviously a big change for us in terms of how bullish we are through year end and as you rightly pointed out it was based on a lot of technical metrics and so we track over 20 of them in a proprietary model we have and these are just pure technicals nothing to do with fundamentals and learn to pay attention to that over time. And if you look back over the last several years, you'll see that we'll put out short-term things where we're covering a lot of shorts or putting a lot back on. The market had gotten really oversold. And seasonally, Q4 is the best time of the year to own stocks. And so you combine those two things and our view was the market's going to do, have a short-term rally, probably last through the fourth quarter. But in 2024, that's where we have concerns based on the longer term things that we're watching for. And so I call it Goldilocks in Q4 meets the three bears in 2024. And in 2024, you're dealing with 25 million people having to restart repaying student loans, oil seeping into inflationary metrics, and then higher for longer, people really having to focus on that. And that's inflation, Fed funds rates. And so all of that sort of tied together. And so that's short term versus now. Let's talk a little bit about the shorts because when we last spoke, I think it was early August. And at the time, I think you were less than impressed of what you heard from Q2 results and Q3 guidance among many sectors in the market, but specifically some tech names. And when I think of the two biggest, I think of Apple and Microsoft from their highs in July, okay, in and around earnings to their lows in September, they were both down about 15%. 
The S&P was down about 8%. So you just talked about how your book was about 50-50 long short, which most hedge funds, that is a high short conviction, correct? If you were at 50% shorts. And so I'm curious, how did a lot of those shorts perform? Because I know that your performance has been really great in the fund over the last two years. I believe you had a good year when the market was down in 2022. Also, did you get a lot of outperformance by your shorts during that period where you were particularly bearish and that October 4th tweet? Yeah. So last year, it's out there. Fund was up. Obviously, NASDAQ was down over 30% and the S&P was down close to 20%. We made money in the fund in July. We made money in the fund in August and knock on wood, I'm probably jinxing myself. We're making money so far in September. And to your point, the shorts really contributed a lot to that. And Believe it or not, the longs that we have, some of them are also not in the mainstream and they're new ones that I've gotten focused on recently, things like consumer staples and Russell 2000 stocks. But yeah, the shorts really helped us out a lot. And to your point on Microsoft and, and Apple, last quarter Q2 is a good blueprint for what I see happening this quarter, which is you had some names that were talking up AI, et cetera, that didn't quite perform. And Microsoft, by the way, is one of them, because if you look at what they did last quarter, when they guided for September in their intelligent cloud division, which has Azure, all the AI related stuff, they actually guided slightly below the street for September in that intelligent cloud. Division. And the stock went down and it should have. And by the way, that's true for a lot of companies that you've seen. Oracle obviously had the biggest one day drop down 14% in a day after they guided below the street for both revenues and EPS for their upcoming quarter. This is the worst decline in over 20 years. So there's a real split between the people who are saying AI 50 times and actually having numbers go up gigantically like NVIDIA versus other names that are saying it, but you're not seeing it show up in the numbers because everything else is bad enough to offset it. And I think you're going to see a repeat of that this quarter where we've said publicly we're, we're short Tesla, we're short Apple, um, but we like Google. That's probably our favorite of the mega cap or Magnificent Seven going into earnings. We also own Amazon. Um, that one's a little bit more of a battleground because it's a question of, I think the retail business is doing great, but I don't think AWS is going to be particularly good. And oil being up hurts transportation costs. So we'll have to see what investors decide to focus on. But I do think Amazon's a share gainer in a tougher economic climate. And you've seen it with some of the press releases they've had recently talking about hiring 250,000 seasonal workers. Last year, they only hired 150,000. The year before that was only 150. Talking about Prime Day, where they talked about it exceeded their expectations. It wasn't in their press release a year ago about Prime Day. And talking about 150 million units sold for third parties. And last year that was greater than hundred million. And so I think retail is doing well, but I have a lot of concerns about the AI related portions of the business because yes, that's strong, but everything else is weak. And so you're having to balance this out. You're trying to figure out what do investors actually care about? Because for me, the retail business longer term, that's what I care because that's the majority of their business, but they're not making any money. So if they can get that to profitability and driven also with a lot of the AI offerings they have helping them out over a longer period. That's a positive. So I hate to put it this way, but we're managing the portfolio daily, seeing what comes in, seeing how stocks react to that information, and then processing that and going, okay, what are investors actually thinking? And then managing the fund daily off of that. Made money August to September, made money July too, but the market was up. But we're making money now in September as well. It's that balancing act. I want to stay on Amazon for one second here because I think the, the trading in the stock has been really interesting over the last couple of months. If we go back to when they reported their Q2 in early August, the stock gapped to a new 52-week high on the back of those operating margins in the retail business that surprised. And I know that when you and I spoke earlier in the year, you were concerned about the deceleration in AWS and the competition that they have and the share loss that they've had to a handful of other players here. And a lot of folks were saying that this thing should be troughing as far as AWS growth in the low teens or so. So my concern, if you just look at how the stock traded, it filled in that gap over the next few weeks as a lot of major tech companies did. But then it started rallying again on hopes in and around AI. Obviously, they made that anthropic investment and that came like much after that. But then the stock dropped like a lug, like 15% or so. So it's trying to stabilize here. This one is going to be, I think, 
think probably one of the most volatile names of, of those Mag 7 that reports, and I haven't figured out like a conviction one way or the other. I, I just thought the trading in the name that initially the excitement was on retail and then it got into AI. And then obviously we have some of this FTC stuff and going on. And I don't think that's meaningful. I don't think you probably do anytime soon. There's one piece you left out, Dan, that, you know, come out in my world, which is a lot of people that track that supposedly have some decent information on how AWS is doing because they've got no methods that they're using to try to track it is showing AWS is decelerating. And so that's really what drove a lot of the, the downdraft in the stock over the last month or so is when some of that data started to come out. And as I said to you, I go, well, I care about the retail business because that dwarfs the size of AWS. But remember last year, they lost money in the retail business. They made no money in AWS. They made more than 100% of the profits in AWS. So I sort of get it for investors, but what I think people forget is that Amazon used to make money in retail. Then they had this massive buildup during COVID. At the same time, they're building up this infrastructure while e-commerce demand is dropping, right? The post-COVID hangover. And so now all of a sudden they have these massive fixed costs in 2022 while e-commerce demand is decelerating. Last quarter, you saw a really a good sign of volumes picking up in e-commerce and now profits are getting way better. And I think you're going to see that continue this quarter. To your point, I think this is going to be one of the more volatile stocks. And in full disclosure, I'm guessing I'm going to be long into it. I'm still trying to figure out the sizing, but we'll have to wait and see the day before they report and where the stock is and all the rest of it. But do people care about AWS more because everybody's so caught up in AI that they're ignoring everything else? It's also interesting when we talk about the consumer, right? And, and some of the headwinds that you mentioned, the consumer repayment of student loans and interest rates higher for longer and, and a whole host of other things, people being trapped in their homes for good reasons because they have very low mortgage rates. It wasn't long ago, maybe just a couple of weeks ago, that some of these kind of Teflon retail stocks, and we know that most retail has acted like absolute dog shit and most of the brands and that sort of thing. But when Walmart and Costco joined the party to the downside, a few weeks ago, that was getting a little scary because those were meant to be beneficiaries of the trade down and a whole host of other sorts of things. And so to me, yes, they've recaptured much of that sort of, and it felt like a little bit of a panic, especially in Walmart, because Target has been going one way. All these department stores have been going one way. Some of these brands got into it. The Staples joined the party to the downside. So to me, it's good that Walmart has stabilized a little bit, that Costco stabilized, because it would not have been a great sign for Amazon if those things started like acting in the way that many of their smaller sort of competitors were acting. And that kind of gets into a second thing we haven't talked about, which is you've got the two G themes. You got ChatGPT and you've got GLP. And so that second part feeds into Walmart because when Walmart CEO came out and said, yeah, we see these weight loss drugs having an impact on our business, it, they just took the consumer staples sector apart and a lot of retail stocks, you name it, that could be impacted by it, they absolutely crushed and so I think that also has had a lot of impact on retail. Now, the funny thing is this morning, you got the retail sales figures come out for the entire country and they're incredibly strong, which is why you've seen the 10 year now all of a sudden gap back up 485 today, you know, potentially pushing through its high. We'll see where it closes. And people are like, wow, you know, retail's good. And, and this is sort of a more long dated issue in that you're not going to see a problem in retail because of weight loss drugs. Now, people may use that as an excuse, but it's not like there's a step function between last quarter and this quarter in terms of the number of the people that are taking it. It's going to be a slow and steady increase that'll have some impact. I think the bigger issue is something you touched on, which is you've got 25 million people on October 1st that had to start repaying student loans out of you know 45 million people in total that have them. And that's going to impact demand into the fourth quarter. But I think that's going to be more impactful for things like electronics, et cetera. And then you've still got high inflation as a backdrop. And you, know, you go to the pump and oil's in the mid 80s to high 80s right now. And that's up from 67 bucks back a few months ago. So that I think is much more impactful to demand um, when you think about the holiday quarter in Q4. And, and that's clearly something I'm watching, despite my bullish view in terms of a rally through year end for technical reasons. 
and season out. That's interesting. When that Walmart headline came out, I thought it was total BS. If, if you just think about it, yes, Walmart's been talking about trade down and there's some data out there suggesting that the average household income for a Walmart shopper is higher than it's ever been because of the benefit of that trade down. But Pepsi came out quickly after when they reported just after, I think a week after that Walmart comment, and they said they're not seeing that. And so to me, I just thought that was interesting because I also don't think right now a Walmart shopper, if access to these GLP-1s is scarce, right? And and insurance companies are not really covering them right now. A Walmart shopper is not spending $1,000 a month. They're they're just not. Does the CEO even know? Is he like taking a poll of all these customers and going, are you on GLP-1? I sincerely doubt it. So I'm like, how does he even know? Yeah. So to me, that was my bigger issue with that statement. Yeah, no, I, I thought it was definitely curious. Uh, you just mentioned the 10-year at 485. And so we're recording this. This is Tuesday afternoon, October um, 17th. And it, it looked like it wants to close the yield at the highest level it has in, in, in a couple of decades here. And of 15 basis points, Dan, think about that, okay? Like you and I have spent the better part of the last two decades with interest rates hovering below 1% or so, at least Fed funds for the most part, right? And so 15 basis points at 485 at a cycle high here. If you put a gun to my head yesterday, okay, and told me that we're on our way to 5% and crude oil's at 87 and the US dollar index is at 106 up from where it fell off a cliff a couple months ago or whatever, I'd tell you the S&P is at 4,000 or lower, but here we are, we're not far away from 4,400. And I, I guess, does this get into some of these technical and seasonal sort of dynamics that you're talking about with the stock market? Absolutely. And one of the big changes I've done over the last two years is really, focused on what do I think will happen, which a lot of times is a lot different than what I think should happen. And so what I mean by that is, to your point, do I think the S&P should be down at below 4,000? Absolutely. Because we haven't even talked about valuations, which is if you look at the last 60 years of history when CPI has been between 3 to 4%, the S&P trades at about 17 and a half times. And right now it's trading at 20 times. You're talking about a 10% correction right there from current levels, plus some. And then you throw in, you got things going on in Russia and the Middle East, et cetera. You could argue it should be below it. That's what I think should happen. But what I thought, you know, would happen is that people would be in this zone of, oh my God, it's the fourth quarter, I'm underperforming. The market's gotten completely washed out on October 3rd, which is why we put out that tweet on the morning of October 4th. There's that old maxim of the market's gonna inflict as much pain on as many people as possible. And to me, that was, it was going to rally off of oversold conditions. And that's unfortunately what it's doing, which is why I go back to meets the three bears in 2024, because I think what'll occur is once companies have to report Q4, And some of this impact of higher interest rates, higher oil prices sapping, 25 million people having to repay loans, then the rubber is going to hit the road when they have to report the fourth quarter. And I think it's not going to be pretty. Up until now, you're just putting the blinders on, ignoring it. And the more stocks go up, the more that people are sure to feel like they've got to cover, the more the long only portfolio managers feel like they got to chase. And I saw some survey this morning that get like record levels of cash sitting with portfolio managers and that's stuff that'll get deployed. So, you know, I think that's what will happen. I think it's incredibly stupid, but that's what I think will happen versus what I think should happen, which is the S&P breaks 4,000 at some point as we go through the rest of this, we get into 2024. But as I've said many times, I'm managing the portfolio daily. So much like you're seeing how the market's reacting to this stuff, I'm looking at it as well. And it gives me increased conviction, unfortunately, that the market's just going to probably keep going up for a year after. All right. So right around the time you put out that tweet in early October, I had a scratch pad on my computer before CNBC's Fast Money. I was doing that. It was... I, I had this, okay? So I was just like taking some notes before the show started. I had the S&P that was down 8% from its recent highs. NASDAQ was down 7%. And I went by sector, okay? XLK is tech, down 9%. XLE is energy stock, down 9%. XLI, industrials, down 10%. Consumer discretionary, down 10%. These are all from the highs. XLF, bank stocks, which include Berkshire's funky, but down 12%. XHB, so 
So home builders down 13%, XLP, staples down 13%, transports down 14%, metals and mining down 15%, real estate, okay, was down 20%, XRT down 22%, that's retail, XBI, which is supposedly defensive, that's healthcare, right? Like stocks down 23%, XLU down 23%, the Russell was down 14%, this was about a week ago, and then the equal weight S&P was down 11%. Just, and I probably missed a couple sectors there, okay? But that was like how I was getting my mind set to talk about the show. And at that time, the S&P was still up 11%, okay? So just think about all that, okay? So under the hood, before we get to some single names and where you're putting some money to work, okay, specifically in tech, when you think about that, let's assume that plus or minus 2%, okay, in either direction, you know what I mean, that those sectors of... It's not good under the hood, right? It's terrible under the hood. And you're 100% right. And that's why I've talked about this before. If you go back and you look at the tech bubble breaking in 2000 and then the global financial crisis, the market went down around 50% on average in both of those instances. But you had five rallies in the S&P that were between 18 to 21%, five separate on your way to losing half your money. Yeah. The point is that this goes back to the whole thing of what do you think will happen versus what do you think should happen? And the problem is when you get oversold to these oversold levels, the market fluctuates between fear and greed. On October 3rd, you're at max fear. Now, by the way, I was on CNBC Squawk Box at the beginning of August. And I said, it wouldn't surprise me if there was going to be a 10% correction in the market we laid out, you know, we think rates are going to be higher for longer and inflation is going to be higher than people think and et cetera, et cetera. And to your point, the market was down about 8% from July 30th, which was the peak near term to October 3rd. And then at that point, we're like, okay, we've gotten to these oversold levels. And now much like in 2000 or in 08, you're going to get, you're going to get some sort of rally here. And then I think this will run out of steam by the time we get to Q4. But unfortunately, fundamentals don't matter in the short term. You and I know it just comes down to the stock's going up anyway, and so and I'm going to chase it. Then you have to report the quarter every 90 days, and then you have to like reset reality to what expectations are. And that's why you've seen like Oracle go down the most in 20 years in a single day when they actually had to report. That's why I think this earnings season for the mega caps in particular it could be extremely volatile because you still do have, to your point, Dan, under the hood, it looks terrible. And you've got seven stocks, the Magnificent Seven, that are have on average almost doubled year over year, holding the entire tape up. And if you end up with a colossal disaster at a couple of them, especially some of the ones that are really holding the tape up like an apple, which I think could be possible, it'll get very interesting very quickly because then at that point, people will be forced to deal with the reality, as you put it, that under the hood, things look off. So we'll see. We're dealing with this day by day. Two things you just mentioned I want to hit on here. You used the words, you were on your way to losing half your money. Okay, so the S&P got cut in half from its highs in 07 to its lows in 2009. And it also lost half of its value from its highs in 2000 to its lows in 2002. When I go back and I look, and you also just mentioned rates. We have a, a Fed funds at 5.5%. It's likely to be 5.75 on the upper band by the year end. The last time it was higher than that was early 2000. The last time it was in around five and a quarter percent, okay, was 2007, okay? Those are both instances where the S&P got cut in half. So let's just play this out a little bit. If all of these other sectors that we just mentioned, and there are very few that act particularly well relative to, let's say, these top 10 or 15 mega cap tech stocks and a couple of the GLP-1s, you put Novo, Nordisk, and Lilly together, and you have a trillion-dollar market cap company. You know what I mean? So to me, that is also indicative of investors just just like a moth to flame of those things that they can't quantify. Do you know what I'm saying? Like the pixie dust of AI. And, and again, I don't mean to be dismissive about AI, but we've seen a year ago when before Lilly doubled, okay, the GLP-1 market, I think by the street was like a $25 billion market. Now Goldman's out this morning saying 100. I've seen some people saying 150 by 2030. So I guess my point is under what conditions might the S&P over the next few years get cut in half again? Okay, so we just talked a little bit about the geopolitical stuff. All of that to me is inflationary, Dan. When you think about it, right, from
from commodities, from reshoring, from labor, right? The list goes on and on, okay? And then if you put in some shortages, that sort of thing. Listen, you and I, we do not want some sort of expanded sort of war. And I certainly hope that President Biden going to Israel is meant to be, this is going to be by the time you're listening, he's probably going to be there as a calming sort of factor. He's basically saying the Hezbollah in the north, don't even think about shooting a rocket over here. He's saying to Iran, don't even think about doing anything here. He's also saying to Bibi Netanyahu, let's be cool here a little bit. You know, you know what I'm saying? I, I hope that's what comes out of this a little bit. And then we can show a little restraint too. So hopefully that moderates to some degree. Hopefully the situation in Ukraine moderates to some degree. Hopefully things don't get dialed up with China. Okay. But like all of this stuff is going on at the same time. And if they all just get turned up one or two notches, it's going to be higher for longer on steroids. Like talk to me a little bit about that. And then that speaks to the valuations in stocks here in the U.S. are literally being held up by 10 or 15 names and everything else. You use that 20 times, they're all trading below 15 times. You know what I mean? Like all this other stuff, right? So talk to me a little bit about that. Under what scenario could we see things really get unwound in 2024? One thing you, you sort of glanced on, which concerns me, is if I'm China, this is a great time to make the move on Taiwan. And I've said this for years now, that is going to happen. It is a question of when and not if. And the good news is right now you've got air cover between Russia and now the Middle East, and you've got a presidential election coming up. And I think there's a decent probability that something could happen in 2024, which would ratchet things up even more. With regards to rates, I think the thing that investors forget is over the last 15 years, post-global financial crisis, the average 10-year is 2.4. So it's interesting right now, it's double that level at about 4.8. But if you look at it over 60 years, which is as far back as I've got data, that 10-year average yield is 5.9. And I've said this before, I think rates are going to be going high because of not only a lot of what we've talked about, but you've got 50% more job openings than people unemployed. There's a reason workers are able to go on strike and get big pay raises. And so that's going to have to change quite a bit. You've got quantitative tightening. So the Fed balance sheet's down 700 billion in the past six months. You've got 2 trillion in government deficits next year and bonds that need to be issued. And then you've got 5 trillion in bonds that need to be refinanced. That's a lot of supply. And then I started the year thinking Japan would get off of yield curve control. That was in my top five picks. And I think that's definitely going to happen as we get into 2024, which will push up bond yields even more. So it used to be Tina, right? There is no alternative to owning stocks. Now, if you can get a guaranteed return of 5% locked in for 10 years, that should look pretty good to you. But you've had literally, you could argue, 40 years where with bond yields coming down, it has made 100% sense to just keep taking more and more risk. And then you got to the global financial crisis and the Fed takes rates to zero, essentially, over a period of time, which makes it even more feasible to take more and more risk. And remember, under this scenario, inflation's coming down. And then you finally get to the point where people go absolutely crazy and they introduce things like modern monetary theory where you can run up debts infinitely and there's no bad impact. And it's funny how you don't hear people talking about that anymore when you got to 40-year highs in inflation. And so now that's dead. And now we're getting back into more a realm of reality. And so unfortunately, you've got 15 years of investors basically becoming addicts to low interest rates. And that weaning off process is going to be tough. And so you throw in a lot of what you talked about. And I have my views on what's likely to happen long term, but obviously the long term is made up of a lot of short term events. As I said, I'm trying to manage this day by day. But yeah, would it surprise me if the market got crushed? No, it won't. Obviously, if China gets involved with Taiwan and that escalates or Hamas or Iran gets involved, with this situation in the Middle East, that escalates. There's a lot of things that can happen. And so I think you need to stay nimble in this tape. And to your point with Magnificent Seven or 10 to 15 names, however you want to look at it, holding the market up, if you've got some earnings related issues with some big grouping, that's another thing that can set this off. I think it's more of a 2024 issue, but would it surprise me if it happened in Q4? No, but I think the market's showing that 
off of these oversold levels, it's able to ignore a whole bunch of stuff. It's doing it again today. We'll get to today a little bit, but you and I had a front row seat for the dot-com melt up and then melt down. And then also for the financial crisis. And when I think about the last time the S&P had even tested, the fact that we went down 35% in, in two months or so in 2020, right in and around, we throw in Wall Street that term black swan event around, but we literally finally lived through a black swan event, which was COVID, right? for the economy, for markets, and that sort of thing. And the S&P closed up on the year after dropping 35%. It was the quickest drop of- It closed of up 16% that year. No, so to me, so if you ask me what the likelihood of a 50% correction in the S&P 500 is, I'm going to tell you what's changed for me is that it would have to be a nuclear war. I, I mean that sincerely because I know, I, and, I'm, and I hope that doesn't happen, obviously, or the use of a sort of tactical news, maybe, because once they get used somewhere, they might start getting deployed in other places too. And that would really change the, this kind of world order that we've had since World War II in a way. I literally cannot foresee another financial crisis here in the U.S. I know that a lot of folks have been calling for one in China, and there's lots of evidence that they have one, but they have a very tightly controlled economy there, and they can do a lot of things to kind of avert that. I just don't know what would do that again. I really don't, if it's not something that we couldn't foresee. And so, I, I don't know. I, I feel like to down 20 Here's the thing, Dan, it's always a process, right? I was on Wall Street in during the 2000 to 2002 meltdown. And every three months, we downgraded everything we covered in 2000. And I was negative for almost two years. And every three months, the market would have a rally. Every three months, people would call the bottom. This went on for two and a half years. And I upgraded about three months too early in like June is when I started upgrading of O2, market bottom in October. But that was a long drawn out process. And so I think to some degree, you and I don't have to worry about what makes the market go down 50% because it's going to be a process. It's going to take some time and you're going to get a bunch of rallies and you'll have people always calling the bottom and saying, we're going to go up. Here's what it ultimately comes down to. The stock market's really simple. It's earnings times valuation. You know, valuations are high relative to where inflation is. You know that you got 50% more job openings than people unemployed. That's going to put downward pressure on multiples. And the earnings are ultimately going to be impacted by the fact that you got wages going up enough, commodity prices going up enough because all this green stuff is great for the environment, but it's horrible for costs. And then you throw on top of it all the onshoring or nearshoring or friendshoring, whatever you want to call it. And building a fab in Arizona, which is why TSMC is pushing it out, is twice as expensive to get chips out of there than getting a fab out of Taiwan. And don't forget, China had their first decline in population in 60 years. And so you're taking away cheap labor overseas. That's not the case anymore with lower birth rates. You're taking away cheap energy because of green energy. That's gone. And then you're taking away offshoring, which is now nearshoring, which is more expensive. So all these trends that have been deflationary for 40 plus years they're now inflationary. And I think that gets to why I think you could have multiples overcorrect to the downside, but it's a process. It's not something I spend much time thinking about, but that's when I put it all together because who in the late nineties with all these tech IPOs and the internet's going to change everything and it's eyeballs that matter and for valuations. And then NASDAQ goes down 78% from peak to trough during that period of time, while the internet is, by the way, changing everything. And Amazon goes from 106 to six, while the revenues are double. So I've seen a lot of stuff, and that's why it wouldn't surprise me, because I think you've got 15 years where the view is, well, the stock market went up 16% during COVID, so it'll never go. And there's so many people in their 30s and 40s that I talk to that say, well, the government will take care of it. I'm like, their hands are tied with inflation. The government doesn't have the same capacity that they used to. Hey listeners, it's Dan here. I want to tell you about a company that I'm really excited about. It's called Current. It's a fintech company that's completely disrupting traditional banking. I'm a new Current customer. It's already helping me and my entire family manage our finances, all from one easy to use app. So try Current for yourself and get the app by going to current.com slash okay. That's current.com slash okay. Current is a financial technology company, not a bank. Banking services provided by Choice Financial Group, member FDIC, and Cross River Bank, member FDIC. 
With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. Let's talk about um, a name that you're positive on. And this is a stock that I believe the S&P could go down 25%, the NASDAQ could go down 30%. This stock would double to the downside. And, and this is NVIDIA. Now, it's one you're positive on. And I just want to be really clear here that obviously the stock's up 200% on the year. It's a trillion one market cap. Expected earnings and sales growth for calendar 2024, over 50%. Okay, so it's trading at about 25 times. That seems really reasonable. And a lot of folks like you, as it's been marching higher all year long and you've been long it and it's been working for you, okay, you've been saying it's going to grow into a valuation. But then if you look at the out year beyond that in 2025, expected 20% earnings and sales growth or so. And to me, this is one where this is going to be a moving target, in my opinion, okay? All of their customers are moving so quickly to develop their own advanced GPUs to train their models and to go into their supercomputers and the like here. And I just feel like the enthusiasm around this stock, 60 buy ratings, three holds, the stock's trading at 440 right now. It's down 5%-ish as we speak on Tuesday afternoon because of further restrictions by the Biden administration on these advanced GPUs to China and specifically the ones that were tweaked to be sold to China. Okay. So at one point it was down 7% or so today. I look at the universal optimism about this company. I look at all of the customers and competitors who have all the incentive in the world to figure this out. I know you just can't figure it out. I, I get it. You know what I mean? And I know the, the software ecosystem in and around these chips that, that they've been able to create. But I just make the point that these guys were telling a great story around crypto mining. And then they were telling a great story around data center. And then they were telling a great story around gaming. And then they were telling a great story around metaverse. Okay. All this is this the last five years, Dan, right? And from its highs in 2021 to its lows early this year, maybe late last year, it lost 75% of its value. Okay. So I guess my point is this could happen again, like a lot sooner than the NASDAQ or the S&P could get cut in half, in my opinion. They're going to come out sometime in 2024 and you're going to have supply having caught up with demand. And much like a year and a half ago, they're going to start missing because there's definitely double and triple order. That's clear. And you're not going to have double and triple ordering going on and at the same time have worries about Amazon Web Services, which is the biggest public cloud vendor. Those two things don't coexist. So that is going to occur. But here's the, the other side of this. Remember, it's only trading at about 30 times. It's 25% below the long-term average. And what I would say is as a hedge fund, there are a lot of other names. I look at that and I go, okay, so I can buy NVIDIA at roughly 30 times next year. Let me just double check it. Yeah, 29 times next year. Now I go, they're growing revenues 84% this year. They're looking at 58% growth next year and we'll see where that turns out. I said, okay, and I can pay 29 times for it. With Apple, I can pay 26 times next year and get 2% growth last year, no percent growth this year. So for me, I'm like, I'll short Apple. I can put that up against NVIDIA because I look at the computing space, the smartphone space, and I go, I've got computing stocks trading in the single digit PEs. Last year, we made money. NASDAQ's down 33%. We were net long. We made money because I don't really care about NVIDIA in a vacuum. I care about NVIDIA relative to other names. And remember, these guys, unlike every other company that's saying AI 50 times, and TSMC, by the way, giving you a great example. This is last quarter. I think numbers are fine this quarter, but TSMC is the foundry for NVIDIA. Last quarter, they reported and they took down revenue forecasts. At the same time, NVIDIA comes out, they report, and they take up July by 53% in terms of revenues for the July quarter. They beat the July quarter by 21% after already having raised at 53. And then they take up the October quarter by 27. So for me, it's about matching up positions. And so... I 100% agree with you that at some point, this double, triple ordering will stop. But right now, there's not even close to enough capacity to meet the demand. And so I think as long as the numbers keep going higher and as the valuation keeps getting lower, because the numbers are going up faster than the star, 
And to your point, the stock's down from where they reported those blowout numbers. I just have to match it up with other stuff that I think has got a much bigger problem. And AI is real, much like the internet was real. But to your point, Dan, NASDAQ went down 78% from peak to trough from 2000 to 2002. And AI, there's going to be some shakeout between every company claiming they're an AI beneficiary to those that are actually benefiting. And so I, I think you and I are saying the same thing, but it's not expensive. And I think that's the thing I would point out. And I try to compare it to Apple, given it's the most valuable company in the world and the relative growth rates there. The only point, and I know that you are very nimble and I know that you are matching themes up long and short in the book. The point that you made about Microsoft's intelligent cloud and the guidance that they gave, if NVIDIA, no matter how good the quarter that they just completed or they're gonna complete at the end of October when they report in November, if there is a similar sort of trend in a handful of- They're, they're, they're not gonna have a trend like that. They're gonna be raised by a lot. The question is how does the stock react? And if you look at last quarter, the stock was barely up that day. It started on its highs, closed on its lows. It was up, I think, 0.1% after reporting those blowout numbers. So the stock action can be a lot different than what fundamentals are. But what I would tell you is that if NVIDIA starts to act like that, there's a whole bunch of other AI-related names that don't have that kind of upside to numbers. And I would bet you that they're going to be down a lot more than that day. And hopefully I'm short those teams making money. I just think the incremental buyer for NVIDIA here, like, I don't know where it exists. That's my point. Without massive beat and raises that surprise the upside. I want to hit a couple names before we get out of here. I really appreciate your time so far here. So Apple, you mentioned that there could be something lurking there. It's interesting as we speak, Tim Cook is over in China right now. He went to some 10 cent gaming forum. The headline the other day was that the 15 sales are not tracking nearly as well as the four last year. I think this is a theme that you and I touched on, and we can also touch on it as far as Tesla is concerned, is that, again, these are going to be two of the last battles fought between us and China. When you think about from a manufacturing standpoint, when you think of a supply chain standpoint, you think of access to this Chinese consumer and the like here. Is it a coincidence that Tim Cook happens to be over in China right now at a time where the headlines are not particularly great as it relates to demand for their smartphones? And listen, there are plenty of local competitors Editors at much cheaper price points that have access to all the stuff that Chinese consumers want, these sort of super apps that our friend Elon is dying to turn Twitter into, which I don't think he's going to be able to do that. So let's talk about Apple for, for a minute here and what your expectations are into the quarter. Apple's really simple. It trades at 30 times, as we talked about before. The S&P is at 20. You had 2% revenue growth last year. You had 0% growth this year. You've had three down year-over-year -year quarters in a row. They guided September to down for a fourth consecutive quarter year-over-year. -year. They haven't had four down year-over-year -year quarters in a row, I think, since 2001 or 2002. It's way too expensive for where it trades at. The bigger issue in your mind it should be the following if you're an Apple investor. In 2019, Huawei had about 16% global market share for smartphone. Donald Trump went ahead and put in those sanctions. That market share went from 16% to below two. They introduced a new high-end smartphone just a few months ago, which is selling incredibly well. And so that 16% share that went to below two, Apple got some of it at the high end because Huawei, they were at the higher end. And everything you've heard about the Huawei phone is it's selling incredibly well. It's all homegrown chips, et cetera. What if the share goes back from two to 16? Apple's going to have a huge problem. Because China's a big market. So then you have people saying, yeah, but they're going into India and you've got this big installed base. Guess what? They've been going into India over the last year and the revenues are still down year over year. Installed base has been going up and the revenues are still down year over year. They are trying to push into services and the revenues are still down year over year for the total company. And by the way, India's average GDP per person is about one tenth of what it is in the United States. And it's less than, I think it's 50% less than what it is in China. They barely can afford the iPhone, never mind the services. You look at all of this and none of this would matter if it was at a 10 PE, like a Dell or an HP or an HPQ, but it's a 30 times. The thing I point people to is it's a process when things change. And don't forget in fiscal 19, before COVID supercharged their revenue growth, their revenues in fiscal 19 were down year over year because the smartphone market is saturated. And on top of it, you've got iPhones that are still overheating. And that's even with the fix. 
The nonsense, though, about these upgrade super cycles that all these sell side analysts, they just, that's how they justify the seasonality of their trade. It's so dumb, especially when you think about how people are paying for iPhones these days through all these monthly plans and everything like that. To me, it doesn't make a lot of sense. And my partner, Guy Adami, likes to say all the time when Apple was a growth stock years ago, it traded a value stock valuation. Now that it's a, a value stock, it, to me, I agree it doesn't make... The problem is people have tried to convince themselves it's somehow a consumer staple stock. Yeah. You can own it forever. Yeah, look what just happened to Staples. Look at Pepsi just sold off 25%. Well, forget that. I'd say, look at what happened to Disney. Disney hit a nine-year low. And I think of all the people, and I I think of the seminal event is when ESPN, this was, I don't even know how long ago, I want to say seven, eight years ago, came out and said, we're losing subs. And that was just a shudder throughout the space because it was assumed that sports was the one area of media that was unassailable. And it's been a slow decline since then. And people still go back to, oh, you got to own Disney. And yeah, you can make a some of the parts argument, but until somebody's actually willing to break the company apart, it doesn't really matter. It's a great business school argument. It hasn't stopped the stock from going to a nine-year low. And so I look at Apple and I go, at the end of the day, the growth is the growth and this is where you're sitting. And if you want to pay 30 times for it, be my guest. But that to me is incredibly risky when you look at PC companies that are trading in the single digit P's. And quite honestly, we're looking at some of them because we're going, well, you know what? We may actually with Windows, people having to move to the next generation, maybe there is a mini upgrade cycle going there and things get better. And at a single digit P, that's interesting versus Apple sitting at a 30 P. To me, it's all about risk versus reward. And to me, it's just not there for Apple. If it was at a single digit P, then yeah, I'd definitely be more interested in it, but that's not where it's sitting at. And it's not a consumer staple. I think we're going to figure that out when Q4 results come in. And with overheating phones in the developed markets, I don't know how that's something that a consumer wants to buy for a thousand bucks either. No doubt. All right, before we get out of here, let's hit Tesla here, because this is one that I think you said on CNBC recently, and, 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 and we've talked about it before. You are short. And this is a company where, to me, if I'm just looking at I'm not looking at Dojo, and I'm not looking at full self-driving and AI capabilities and all this sort of stuff. It's a car company who's seen its margins go from 25% automotive to probably 17% when they report on Thursday. So they are feeling the effects of the competition specifically in China. There was an article in the information and I just was like looking for it here and I, I read it quickly the other day. It was talking about how Xiaomi, okay, so it's another cell phone maker in China is, that has decent market share. I think it's number two be, be behind Huawei. I, I think it's correct. How they're going to be releasing an electric car that's going to be autonomous. It's going to be a massive shot across across the bow for Apple and their 10-year ambitions with Titan. And I'm reading this article and I'm saying to myself, this is not a shot across the bow at Apple. We don't even know what Titan is. This is a shot across the bow at Tesla. I don't know if you saw this article because if you think about it and the competition there is massive for them. And if we do have nationalistic tendencies that are working into their consumers, that might be evident with what we just mentioned with this Huawei phone, right? And with this ban of Apple phones by government agencies in China, they're going to get to Tesla soon enough. And the Tesla's September sales in China were down 11%. Somebody was reporting that over the weekend or so. To me, this one seems like an accident waiting to happen. The only other point I'm going to make here real quickly, and I'm going to let you go. Last week, there was an article in CNBC.com about a whistleblower at Tesla in 2021. I don't know if you caught this, but this is about some of the financial shenanigans that a lot of the bears have been suggesting have gone on for years. You know what also happened in the last couple of months? This longtime CFO resigned on a Friday. It was a Friday night dirty. You remember that uh, a few months ago and, and with no explanation whatsoever. So I'm not trying to be all conspiracy theorists here, but to me, it seems like the fundamentals are not great at this company. And you know what? Elon should go back to just putting, I know that Falcon Heavy just took off this morning or something. Go back and do that, man. Be the genius that we all know you to be. I know you think of him very highly. That's how we ended our last pod in August. Look, I have a Model X Plaid. It's the highest end Tesla. I think Elon Musk is this generation's Thomas Edison. I think he's absolutely brilliant. But I'm short the stock. And, you know, at the end of the day, like with Apple, well, it's different than Apple and that Tesla is actually growing revenues quite rapidly. But I think the biggest problem, honestly, with Tesla is where rates are. What I mean by that is most people buy cars on installments. They borrow money, financing plans, et cetera. And you combine that with have we gotten to the early adopters where a lot of people can't have a Tesla because there's no place to plug it in. If you're parking it on the street or a parking garage, it doesn't have that capabilities. And there's some signs that EV demand is kind of slowing. If you 
look at the regular car companies, a lot of them are going more to hybrids, which instead of just pure EVs, because that gets you out of this sort of range uncertainty. I plug mine in, you know, every night. And so I don't have that issue, but I'm not going to take it on a long trip because of that problem. And the valuation is high. To your point, margins have come down from the mid twenties into the teens. And Elon rightly or wrongly has said he's happy if they don't make any money on the cars because he's looking at the longer term play of robo taxis and doja and everything else, which is all well and good. But I don't think shareholders would react particularly well to that. And you've seen the price cuts. They missed their delivery numbers. And again, I think it's risk versus reward. It's not a big short for us because obviously the stock is driven more by sentiment than fundamentals to some degree in the short term. But on a relative basis, I'm fine being short that. And don't forget, we haven't talked about some of the longs that we have, but besides NVIDIA, we're long Google, mid-teens PE, we're long Oracle, 20 PE, Microsoft by comparisons at 32 times, or long Amazon, long NVO and Lilly. But we're also having other end of the barbell, which is the hated names. We have a basket of Russell 2000 stocks. We have a basket of consumer staple stocks that got demolished off of the whole drug obesity stuff. So we have the barbell at that end too. And, and that's how we're looking to try to make money between now and year end. And obviously watching oil prices, as I've said multiple times, that's why I wake up every morning. It's the first thing I look at because I go, if oil's up, market may have more issues. If it's down, it'll probably be fine. That's my number one thing. And so to me, matching Tesla up against some of my longs, I'm no, that makes sense. And, and the thing that Tesla is interesting to me is that you just mentioned your Model S Plaid that is probably a dollars $20,000 car. And, I wish it were that cheap. All right. So it starts at that and depending on range and the like here. What's interesting to me though, is that they probably sell in America, maybe tops 5,000 of those a quarter. I just want to be really clear on that. And I think on the high end, like they're selling thousands of those. Okay. And I think to myself that they're going to make their bones. You mentioned robo taxis. They have to get to a $25,000 car, right? So that's the model three or whatever this next thing is. And I think that this cyber truck thing is a sideshow. Okay. Like, I just don't think that like a lot of people have hundred dollar deposits on them. And so at the end of the day, if you think about where they're going to make those low end cars and where they're going to sell them and then where they're going to deploy the, the robo taxis that are going to be built on the dojo and the full self-driving and all that sort of stuff, it's China. So where they have all the competition. And so the last thing I'll just say is that if I had $125,000 to drop on a four-door fully electric sedan, okay, let's just, let's call it, that I'd be going straight to that Porsche take-in. I think in a blind taste test, okay, or drive test or whatever, I think that's what most people are doing. And then when they see them also, and the last thing, I know this is a bit of a rant, I'll just say is I try to get Tesla all the time for Uber. I am amazed at how shitty the Model 3s are. Like the seats and, and the rattling and all this sort of stuff. They're crap, dude. And like people who know cars, they are crappy cars. So on the low end where they need to dominate to get this thing to mass market, where the whole valuation makes sense, the cars aren't good. So I don't know. I, I, to me, I know that that was a little much, wasn't it, Dan? I think that was a lot much because what, what you have to remember is you can say that, but at the end of the day, the revenues for Tesla were up 51% last year. Of course, they're up another 22% this year. This is an Apple where Apple's got no growth. People are buying this. The, the, the thing for me is that I think the price point, the range anxiety, where rates are driving financing costs, to your point, competition in China is real, which by the way, is the biggest market for electric vehicles in the world. And so having homegrown competitors, that's an advantage for them. Those are all things you need to consider along with the valuation. Now, don't get me wrong. We owned Tesla for the first time in a couple of years at the beginning of this year. I clearly should have held on to it for longer than I did if you look at the price. So I have nothing against Tesla. I obviously admire the company and Elon immensely, but I just think those big picture things that are going on right now. And I've got alternatives. That's the beautiful thing about the stock market where I can own a Google or an Oracle or an Amazon, where I think numbers are pretty solid here, hopefully. That gives me a good matchup and we don't have a lot of shorts and Tesla's one of them. We'll see how this shakes out. Listen, Dan, I appreciate you coming back every quarter. There was, we just covered so much from the macro to a bunch of your individual longs and shorts. And I love hearing how you manage your portfolio. I think a lot of our listeners really um, enjoy that too. You tend to be really nimble and, and you don't wait around for mistakes to happen. I think we all get caught off guard here and there, but that whole notion of not, listen, 
people say that thing, trade the market that you have, not the one that you want. I think your nuance is a lot better with thinking about it. You know what I mean? Like the way you detailed it from a, a single position standpoint or a macro standpoint. So listen, I really appreciate you coming on and, and giving our listeners the benefit of your experience. And obviously the performance has been fantastic. So Dan Niles, you are the founder and portfolio manager at Satori Funds. I really appreciate you coming back to OK Computer. My pleasure to be on, Dan. Thank you for having me. If you like what you heard, make sure to hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. We also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com.